from the creators who brought you RuPaul's Drag Race and Million Dollar Listing. This is World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Wow Report on Radio Andy. I'm Fender Bailey, co-founder of World of Wonder, joined by my two um, partners in crime. There you go. Partners in crime, James St. James, editor of the Wow Report, and Tom Campbell, our chief creative officer. I give you both a big virtual hug. And we we continue on in lockdown. And what what we're doing remotely is still counting down the top 10 things of the week that made us go, wow. And as luck would have it last week, I think it was literally hours after we taped, Trump was COVID, you know, Trump had COVID. So it seems like whatever we do, you always know something amazing and epic and more wow than anything will happen. <laughs> Immediately afterwards, yes. We're always a little beat. We're a beat behind, always. I'm just fashionably out of date, you know. <laughs> but let's start at number 10, Tom. Number 10. It's another rest in peace. We lost a, uh, a rock legend, Eddie Van Halen, guitar virtuoso, and, and a style of music that isn't usually my speed. So I was kind of shocked. A, he was 65, which seems so young. But the first Van Halen album, 1978, which has Running With The Devil, the cover of The, the Kinks, um, She Really Got Me, she really got me. Um, it conjures a space, time, and smell. High school gym. Smell. <laughs> football players. Jock straps. <laughs> the soundtrack of the football team that I think eight track tape, maybe it was a cassette, played over and over and over again. And it was the most infectious, most dynamic, most exciting sound. I'm from New Hampshire. I'm from Aerosmith country. So not since Aerosmith earlier in that decade had a group came that, that along, a lot of groups came along, but it captured everyone loved it. And, and you can't underestimate how attractive David uh, uh, Lee Roth was at that age, at that time, and had that look that was just, it was like, it was catnip to a little gay boy yeah. in Michigan. I'll tell you what. And I'll tell you, he was definitely the, the front man. Yeah. Eddie Van Halen, not too far in the back with that guitar. They said that, like, uh, the showmanship was taken care of by David Lee Roth, and the musician, the, the musicianship, and the musicality was yeah. was was Eddie. Who also, I'm sorry, the first thing I did was I po- I went and looked at images, and I posted like four of him, kind of like very handsome, such a handsome man. Yes, very handsome, very sweet. Of course, once married to Valerie Bertinelli, and they have a son, Wolfgang, who was also yeah. a member of the band later in life. And there was that moment in time, and there's no shame in this. Where Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen looked exactly like, and were a super couple, and we were all—they were the Burt Reynolds and uh, Lonnie oh, yeah. Anderson of their da- of their time, definitely. You know, I, um, I just want to say, I just want to, I want to sort of put it out there that, like, I, like you, it wasn't exactly my kind of music. He did do the beat it, which I know you're going to talk about in a second, mm-hmm. but a tear slipped out of my eyes when I heard the news, and it was because. He was such a part of the 80s. He and Valerie and, you know, the Van Halen and Michael Jackson. And it was the 80s are, you know, my 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 coming of age years. And it was just it took me it, it's a part of my life that's gone, you know, and his death really, really meant something to me. And it made me think, like, how old was I when I was walking across the gym floor, which was our locker room? 
uh, in the football season. Like, how old was I? I'm like, like I, he was 65. I'm like 57. So it's like, you know, I was 15. He was 23 and ruling the world. Yeah. Um, Fenton, did, did Van Halen have any impact on your... Well, it was more David Lee Roth, you know, just a gigolo. And when he broke out, I mean, jump, of course. And, and I definitely think James is right. There's a certain sort of shagadelic haircut, permed. That, so Peter Frampton had that look too, right? That yeah. gorgeous, long, flowing, blonde locks that were just sort of so sort of sexually fluid, I might say, given the yeah. sort of masculine, given the Burt Reynolds masculine. And they were in the spandex and they were jumping around. <laughs> and, and, and I have to say that Van Halen really was the next wave, right? They, it was sort of the 70s rock scene, which was pretty serious and was getting a little dire. And then you had Van Halen, which kind of spawned all of the lookalikes and the... The Rat, yeah. uh, yes, everything yeah. afterwards. This yeah. is, but, a, you know, um, I remember when Mark Boland died of T-Rex... Mark Bowl of T-Rex, he had the misfortune to die the same day as Maria Callas. Oh. And so it was all about Maria Callas, not about T-Rex at all and Mark Bowlin. And yeah. there was another musician who died the same day as Van Halen. I was going to mention it in the WOW report, because, and I've forgotten who it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the guy who sang, it's going to be a bright, I can see clear. Yeah, Johnny Nash. Johnny Nash. Yeah, Johnny Nash. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I, I do want to. I, I do want to just say about the um about beat it. I did read an interesting song. I mean, I read an interesting story where um he had come in and Michael Jackson wasn't in the the studio when he laid down the the guitar riff for beat it. And he said at the time, "Do you mind if I make a few changes here? And I'm just going to go into the beginning here and make, tweak this, and we're going to add a little bit here and do that." And he said that he was a little afraid because artists can be touchy about their music. And Michael Jackson came in and said, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this and also for making the song better. And I just want to thank yeah. you for the changes you made, which I thought was incredibly great. I was watching some interviews and stories and about how Quincy Jones was such a part of that. And Quincy Jones, while making Thriller, want, took to, sort of brought all these different kinds of musicians together, rock, rock star, because he wanted something to be, he wanted it to be a soul hit. He wanted it to be, you know, playing Black Road. He wanted it to be a pop hit. He wanted it to be a heavy metal hit. And, you know, there's that story I told the other week at MTV. They thought Beat It with Eddie Van Halen was going to be the first Michael Jackson singer. Oh, right. And that was going to be, that was permission for them to play a Black artist when radio, when radio, everything was so segregated. And they ended up, Michael, last joke was on them because Michael delivered uh, 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 Billy Jean. But uh, that is, that, that was a huge moment of that collaboration. And it's a 32 second solo. And if you go to YouTube, it is, it is isolated by itself. And they are these, the most, the New York Times obituary is quite good. And it said that Eddie Van Halen constructed, composed a, um, or orchestrated a guitar solo like, like Macy's does the 4th of July fireworks. Like it was just unpredictable and went all these different places and arms akimbo and, and he'll be greatly, uh, greatly missed and thoughts to his son. And, and uh, he has, he has, a, he remarried his another wife, but Eddie Van Halen rests in perfection. I did Darn. see Valerie Bertinelli had a, some nice things to say as well on Twitter yeah. and, and Gene Simmons and Motley, everybody has come out in praise of what a, what a virtuoso performer he was and someone we so really young. Loved. So yeah. young. Anyway. Okay. Let's move on. Number nine. Number nine. 
Number nine, um, I wanted to talk about Antebellum, which is streaming everywhere. It's a movie starring Janelle Monet and Gabourey Sidibe and Jack Houston and um, uh, Jenna Malone uh, is one of the stars. And it's um, <sighs> I don't know about this one. It's 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 hard. It's it's torture porn. Um, it is. It starts off and we uh, Janelle Monet is a slave working in a plantation that is run by the Confederate soldiers. And the first half hour is almost unwatchable in the treatment of the different slaves and the, 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 the things that they do to them and to the, the different women on the plantation. And it's just, it is, it's, I mean, you know, you watch things like uh, 12 years a slave or something like that. And you know, you're watching something important, you know, like when you watch things about slavery and the Holocaust and, but this, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's a little too gruesome and it glorifies a little too much of the violence, violence for the sake of violence. The next part of the movie about halfway in, uh, we switch to the modern times and Janelle Monet is again playing someone in modern times. And she's like a CNN uh, talking head. She gives motivational speeches. She has a fantastic, gorgeous husband, gorgeous kid, a gorgeous wardrobe. She's got a sassy friend in Gabrielle Sidibe who steals every scene that she's in. And we switch back and forth between modern times and, and, the, and then this, the plantation. And then something weird happens. And I can't give away without, without, letting, without spoiling the whole movie. But suffice to say that M. Night Shyamalan did it better and did it first. And that's not saying something because I hate M. Night Shyamalan. And I think that he's pokey and, and hacky and terrible. Um, uh, this tries very hard to say something about white supremacy and intergenerational black trauma and everything. But it bogs down in this um, like horror film tropes and um just it's it glorifies like the pulpy nature of like horror films and i don't know if you need to see it but there is a twist and the twist is pretty jaw-dropping and it makes no sense until the last five minutes and if i was to see it where would i see it i think you can see it on voodoo or i mean it's just out everywhere it's, it's it was a movie based it was supposed to be a movie but it's, it's sort of everywhere and so an underlying message, important, good execution, a little iffy. Well, okay. Janelle Monet is very good. She is, she is very good. And Gabrielle Sidibe is hysterical. And she's, I mean, she might get, I mean, she's possibly nomination worthy. She's so funny. But it's, it's bloody and gory and needlessly violent and terrifying and sad and tragic. And so there you go. Got it. Uh, moving on, I had my own experience of torture porn just the other night, watching the remake of Boys in the Band. Number eight. Oh, no. Tom watched it, I know, didn't you? I try- I saw the play and I liked it. I started to watch it on Netflix and I was like, I- I'm too depressed already. I can't watch this. What do you think, Benton? I loathed the original film. Yes. Loathed it, loathed it with a passion. I could barely get through it. And for me, it was a sort of thing of like, do I really want to be gay? Like after, is this, is this all there is? No, not is this all there is. It's like, what a freaking nightmare. And look, I know I am the first to admit I'm extraordinarily prickly about 
represent. I mean, one thing is to have no representations, but then I'm the sort of gay who, the moment he's represented, is like, that's not me. They don't know me. They got it wrong. So I don't I mean, like any of it. There's something to say <laughs> for the fact that it was pre-Stonewall and it was very much of its time and they were self-hating, self-loathing homosexuals. And that was a particular type of person that no longer exists. But in which case, why do you need to revisit that? Why do we need to go back to that? Well, uh, number one. Number two is uh, I did learn something interesting. Matt Crowley was Natalie Wood's assistant. Did you know that? Personal assistant. And so that's, he wrote the play in his, in his downtime time and he said of the play that he just wrote the truth but i just i just don't think it's the truth for a second and you're right james i have been lord knows you know that the, the i've been there myself the self-hating queen etc cetera, etc cetera. but just the viciousness and the meanness is like well, we do know vicious queens though i mean they do still in, in a lot of those people of yes, that still, still are the queens miss thing miss miss mary miss mary I when I saw the play, and I don't know why, because I hadn't really seen the movie, or if I'd seen pieces of it as a youngster, it so scared and repulsed me. I didn't watch the whole thing, <laughs> you know, because it was supposed to be the scary thing. I didn't want to look into the future or something. And then I went to see the play because I was curious, and I actually thought the play, which is the same cast, was really good, and I thought it really was representative, and I thought it was slick and interesting. What stood out to me, and maybe this is telling you more about me, is I thought it's not just a play about being gay and angry. It's a play about alcoholism because I felt like a big turn where it just turns monstrously ugly is when in the play, I don't know if it's when Jim Parsons pours that drink and then it's like, you know, it's that bet. It's not, it's worse than everybody Davis, but you know, fasten your seatbelts boys. So, and obviously alcoholism and self-loathing and gay community, that's all part of some people's experience too. But I thought for a minute, like this isn't about gay life. This is about, alcoholism you know and, and, and there are those angry drunks that we all know and who's afraid of, who's afraid of virginia wolf kind yeah. of but i i will you're totally right because you know some of the reviews say during the party the humor takes a nasty turn as the nine men become increasingly inebriated but 44 minutes in almost before anyone had had a drink it was too toxic for me i just couldn't watch it i was just well, like wait a minute but tell me how charlie carver did because i love charlie and he, he he the kid from desperate housewives he, he was beautiful right. on stage he, he showed up he looks very cute and i'm sure it was i suppose it was almost watching a lamb to the slaughter i just couldn't bear to see the brutality that was about to rain down on him anyway i just i, I will just say as i was watching it because um jim parsons is in it and i think jim parsons hmm He's played a gay in something else I've seen recently that didn't like. Oh, that was it. It was Hollywood. Yeah. And then I was thinking, ah, oh, the the way I'm watching, I was thinking, I bet Ryan Murphy did this. You know, it just had that yeah. Ryan yeah. Murphy. Yeah. Guess what? Ryan Murphy did it. It's a Ryan Murphy show. And I think really that's all you need to know. I mean, well, wait, I, I just want to just say that Charlie Carver also was in the World of Wonder production of Stonewall Out Loud. He was one of the the readers from that. So he is a wild celebrity. Oh my God! Yes, I didn't recognize. Oh yeah, yes. I didn't recognize him. Directed very, very yummy, very gorgeous. Um, and well, that's Boys in the Band. It's streaming on Netflix. Hey Blake, I I have a question for you guys. Um, James talked about Janelle Monet and Antebellum, and Janelle actually made her film debut in 2016 co-starring in two different films that both were nominated for the best film 
at the Oscars. What were the two films? Wow. Uh, that's a very detailed question about Janelle Monet. Uh, you're listening to Wow Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back with the answer after the break. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. And welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with Tom and James. And Blake, you asked us an amazing question. But before you give us the answer or recap it, uh, Frida Got a Gun, a documentary about bounce legend Big Frida and her tragic her involvement with guns, which sounds like she's a gun turtle. Actually, Big Frida did carry a gun, but Big Frida has suffered, as many have, at the hands of, of guns and uh, made this incredible journey, went on this incredible journey, made this film with director Chris McKim about gun violence, especially focused in New Orleans. Charles Blow is the executive producer, and it starts streaming on Peacock, the latest streaming platform uh, on Thursday. From Thursday, is Peacock still for free? Is Peacock still for free? Yeah, you can pay to upgrade. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I asked a question about the lovely Janelle Monet. James just watched her new movie, Antebellum. And Janelle made her film debut in 2016 in two different films, both of which were nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. What were the two films? Well, I'm going to say, because I just said, was, was two, 12 Years a Slave? Was that 2016? No. no. Okay. Okay. Then I'm out. What? I feel like I'm going to make, I, I know the answer and I can't come up with it because it's if it was Eddie Van Halen in 1978, I could pull it together. Was she in Get Out? No. Jeez. Tell us. I have no idea. She was in Hidden Figures. Yes. Oh, and then uh, she was in Moonlight, which actually won. Oh, oh she was. I had forgotten about I haven't I've never seen Moonlight. I know I'm a bad gay, oh. but I did watch Hidden Figures on a plane right before COVID hit. So I it is such a good movie. She's fantastic. In both. And I knew that, but I could not access it because of yeah. Yeah, Eddie Van Halen. Who does she play in Moonlight? She played the the girlfriend of the guy that took in the the boy. Oh, okay. really beautiful in it. Yeah, she's stunning. All right, we're counting down the top ten things that made us go wow, and we have reached definitively number seven. Number seven. I'm not a hooker. You're a hooker. <laughs> That's the name of this one. Um, our, you know, th- there's all these audio recordings by uh, the, uh, Melania Trump, the first lady of the United States' assistant, which is totally creepy and such an invasion of privacy, right? Why, like any of us could be caught, you know, in a down moment saying something in a snippet that sounds horrible. Now, wait a minute. I don't know about that because I have a tendency to take my phone calls and I'm not creepy. I well, have no idea, James. You are right here on the air. So good for you, James. There's no two sides to James St. James. <laughs> the wrong stuff right here in the air. But she, this woman had recorded last week. The big reveal was that uh, Melania was was uh, dissing Christmas and sort of belittling kids in cages. And it went, the great quote is, you know, so I'm busy working on the Christmas decorations. Who gives a fuck about Christmas stuff <laughs> decorating? Which is just so delightful in the war against Christmas. And <laughs> the only reason I talk about it with such glee is because, you know, it says something about, I think, Miss Trump, uh, Mrs. Trump, that she surrounds herself with people that are so despicable, there's no honor among thieves, that they will record you and then sell it for a book. 
So there's that. I'm not going to get upset with Mary Trump or Melania's friend for taping these horrible people. If you're a horrible person, you deserve to be tape recorded. That's right. she, said she only hit the record button once she'd been thrown under the bus for the missing millions of dollars. Okay. From the exactly. I, don't, I, I have no problem with these people taping. Just, just when you think, fuck Christmas. <laughs> because, by the way, she said... Christmas uh, at 5 p.m. It was released specific time it broke. And then 11 p.m. She's in quarantine. So if anyone's faking uh, COVID, I think it's Melania to cover up the fuck Christmas quote. But then this little tidbit came out. It's more matter of fact. And she's talking to him and she's like, the porn hooker, uh, Annie Leibovitz. She has photographed the porn hooker. And the friend's like, who, what? She goes, Stormy Daniels. It's the pawn hooker. They're going to put her in the September or October issue. By the way, if you want to give me an award now for my Lonnie impersonation, you may. Um, that was delightful. She, <laughs> I thought I thought Melania had joined us. <laughs> um, oh, I'm, I'm under I'm under prepared here, but no, no, but, you're good. So it's also good, but I want to flip to actually. So storm. So with that, having called Stormy a porn hooker, um, Mo. Uh, Miss Miss Stormy comes out with her own rebuttal, her own tweet, which I must read to you because every word is delightful, and I feel like I can't find it now. Do you need a, do you need a moment to find it? Because I want to ask you a little. I want to play a wee little game. Um, oh yeah, go ahead. Paul Rudnick, who fabulously um, captions uh, pictures of Ivanka Trump looking completely blank. Um, did a thing of, of Melania's other nicknames for other people, okay? So who do you think Melania calls Ivanka? What's what's her nickname for Ivanka? Princess. Greedy pumpkin head. <laughs> according to, this is according to Paul Rudnick. Um, what about Don Jr.? What do you think she calls Don Jr.? Uh, Yucko. Nose candy. Um, oh, the one for Giuliani is really good because Giuliani, the screaming corpse. And um, Stephen Miller, she calls clan vermin. Um, <laughs> Tiffany Trump, clever. The, I have a hard time believing she's actually this witty. She isn't. These are by Paul no, Rudnick. Oh, 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 Paul Rudnick okay. imagining I, but I do want to just say that the, the thing about the Annie Leibowitz is that I don't think that she's upset that Stormy slept with her husband. I think she's mad that, yeah. that someone that, who is Trump adjacent was getting in vogue and she wasn't. I don't think exactly. This is not a joke. This is word for word. This is what Stormy tweeted back to Milani, who was caught saying this on tape. Ha ha ha! Exclamation point. Although I wasn't paid for sex and therefore technically not a hooker, I'll take being that over what you are any day. The porn star tweeted, okay, you sold your pussy and your soul. Keep talking about me. I like your new tits, by the way. Post, parenthetically, more nudes. Hashtag be best, LOL. I'm sorry. That, take, take a seat, Paul Rudnick. That, that is some excellent political satire. No, that is really good. I think um, Stephanie, what's her name, had big plans for the tapes that she's been gradually releasing of Melania, little suspecting that COVID would, uh, COVID, uh, you know, blow up would completely right. preempt her plans. So but when, the, you get, when you get sick of posting about COVID, you can throw in a fuck Christmas, you can porn hooker it, you can, you know, put $750 in taxes down. I mean, it's, 
It's rich, 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 rich. Whichever way you look at it. It's, it's, it's the gift, like Christmas, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It does. Okay. It is the season to not vote for Trump. Exactly. All right, let's move on to number six. James. Number six. Emily in Paris. Emily on Paris. Do you know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It is all that anyone is talking about. It's on Netflix. It's a series. It is car wreck TV. It is unwatchable tripe. It is terrible beyond terrible. And yet I watched every episode in one sitting. I could not take my eyes off of it. And I've been talking about it nonstop ever since. It stars Lily Collins, who is Phil Collins' daughter. And it's by Darren Starr, who did Sex in the City and AJ and the Queen. Right. And it's very junior Sex in the City. She's Lily Collins is a girl who works for an ad agency, a fashion agency in Chicago, and she gets transferred to Perry. And she arrives in Perry, and she's this go-get-em young American, and she's in flashy Sex in the City Carrie Bradshaw outfits with little berets and wacky little purses and match mismatching clothes. And she goes to the new office that she was working at, and she's going to be the social media manager there. And she goes in and she's all gung-ho and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they hate her. They despise her. It is very Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada. And she um, has decided she's there to give an American perspective on the French fashion and to show them how to do social media. Well, it's interesting because when it starts, she only has 40 followers. So how the hell did she get a social media job? It makes no sense. But she's tweeting everything she sees, and Brigitte Macron, the first lady of Paris, retweets something of hers. And immediately she goes up to like 20,000 you know, followers in one day, in one episode. And then they sort of have to take her seriously after that. And everything she suggests is very American. And they're all, you know, in black outfits, smoking, you know, good taints or whatever those cigarettes are. And they all have blowout hairdos and Elsa Peretti cuffs. And she's in Keith Haring outfits. And it's just sort of, you know, a fish out of water. But whatever she does, she ends up being a superstar. And everybody ends up having to take her seriously. And that's my review of Emily in Paris. And you watch it for the fashions because it is funny and fun. But you end up hating every single person there. And it doesn't make the French look good. It doesn't make the Americans look good. It is just horrible, horrible, horrible. I think you're just having a bit of a snip with fashion generally. It's true. I see no purpose in it. It's over. Just to destroy the entire industry. I don't care. And that's why I give you a number five. Number five. That's the segue. <laughs> well, what is it Moschino or Mus- Moschino? Moschino. Moschino. Okay. So Jeremy Scott, who we adore, j'adore, right? Did his fashion show. Have you seen the film? It is incredible. It is a seven-minute film. It is a runway show. The twist is he did the entire show with marionettes. Oh, yes, I did do this. Yes. Because everybody loves puppets, right? That was a line from the eyes of Tammy Faye. I didn't didn't land it, but, you know. (laughs) James, you saw it. Did you love it? Well, I, you know, they did this back in during the war, during World War II. And that's how they, um, uh, they, when they couldn't do fashion shows and they sent puppets and dolls around to different, you know, to, uh, around the country so that people could see the fashions. And they oh, also brilliant. did that in the 19th century as well. So there is a precedence for this. Indeed, how brilliant, because that was going to be my big reveal. 
Oh, no, on the whole thing, I was going to say, well, James, what you probably don't know, <laughs> obviously, you do. There's very um, little that I don't know, Fenton. I thought you knew that by now. <laughs> I loved, what I loved about it was, I, I actually really, have you, have you seen it, Tom? I thought I was through stills. The way the marionettes make their way down the runway is so kind of weird. It's like sort of zombies or sort of, but it has a sort of compelling elegance. You just you just want to watch it. And it feels very 2020. It feels very on point as these sorts of lifeless dolls lurch down the runway in these beautiful clothes. And the other and thing you about- Say what you will about, about um, uh, Jeremy, but he is, he captures the zeitgeist like very few people yeah. in fashion. He's very on it, always. Indeed. His quote was, as the world seems to be splitting along the seams, the bare inner workings of something new will be exposed. And the collection is very sort of inside out, behind the scenes, deconstructed, pockets on the outside, exposed bits of this, that, and the other. So it was a sort of anti-fashion fashion show. And I also loved the characters in the front row. You know, you have Anna Wintour, of course, and Hamish Bowles, and Edward Enninfold. And as there's a little twist, they then um, sent them... Are puppets too? Yes, they're puppets too. That's it, because everybody loves puppets. And uh, I just think they should do it more often, really. It, it is. It's, it's interesting, and it's fun. I wish that um, Greer Langton was around so that she could do it. I, you know, remember Greer Langton yeah. and her wonderful, you know, puppets and everything. Um, at the beginning, Jeremy's sort of wandering through a sort of fairground, and he, and he sees this little sideshow, like a Punch and Judy setup, and this person says, here, come here. Help me zip up this dress. And it's a puppet replica of Jeremy Scott. <laughs> and the, the puppet replica is really rude to Jeremy Scott. And Jeremy's like, oh, I'm so excited to see his show. And he's like, get inside, you stupid old whatnot. And uh, I also say that the puppet's faces are, are rather flattering to everybody involved. Anna's looking really svelte and hot. And Yeah. So I, I wouldn't mind being a puppet, I must say. Getting a fist up me. <laughs> All right. Uh, Blake, I think we're going to take a break, right? We are going to take a break. And I have another question. Tomorrow, Saturday, is um, National Mental Health Awareness Day. So I want I wanted to ask you guys, half of mental illness occurs before a person turns how old? So if you have a mental illness, usually half the people know by the time they reach this age. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, you're listening to Wow Report on Radio Andy. We'll be right back with the answer after the break. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. Welcome back to the Wow Report. I'm Fenton here with James and Tom and Blake. Blake, you had a question for us. Yeah, tomorrow is National Mental Health Awareness Day. So half of all mental illness occurs before a person turns how old? Meaning that if you have a mental illness, half of people know that they have this by the time they reach this age. May I ask a question before we guess? Sure. James, how old are you? <laughs> uh, oh, oh. A mental health joke, humor people meant to be. I'm gonna I'm going to guess based on the Janice Ian song, I learned the truth at 17 that love was made for beauty queen 17. 
I'm, I, you know, I'm going to say I think with schizophrenia that don't they always say that it's like between the ages of like 17 and 25 that you hear. So I'm going to say 25. Because oh, I was going to say 30. Okay. 14. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. And then three quarters of mental illness begins before you're 24. Oh, okay. Okay. Does yeah. that mean we're in the clear? Oh, well, you got I, I would not say so, Fenton. <laughs> None of us. All right. Okay. We're counting down the top 10 things that made us go wow this week. We've reached number four. Number four. I get, you know, I spend so much time bashing the Trumps. I feel bad, especially now that he's a little under the weather. Um, I want to thank President Trump this week. You know, I've been critical in the past for his lack of participation in the Kennedy Center honors and supporting the arts. But this year, this week, excuse me, he brought back our attention to Avita's Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, like (laughs) never before. The crazy batshit moment. When he helicoptered onto the front, onto the White House, and then he walked on with cameras, and then he stepped out onto the balcony with those big golden eagle, Nazi-looking eagles on top of American flags. And he's saying, don't cry for me, America. Yes, don't cry for me, a White House, sta- White House staffers is an excellent parody rendition that uh, the Lincoln Project has. Um, Patty Lapone. Uh, did an amazing tweet. I still have a long power and I wore less makeup. This revival is closing November 3rd. Um, and he, he ripped that makeup off. He ripped the mask off with such disdain. It was just, it was so awful. Yeah. And, but it, it has conjured up immediately um, all these don't cry for me Argentina jokes and memes. And it's it's non-stopping. And there's, there's uh, parodies about it. Patty Lapone and Randy Rainbow did a did a mashup together of something in, in response. Um, what an idiot. Ripped off his mask, was freshly shellacked with orange, and then went back into the White House to greet other maskless people. Um, now, I did want to say that um, uh, the, the footage of him leaving the hospital, getting in the car, arriving at the White House, doing the helicopter, exiting the helicopter and going up into the White House to the balcony – Scene for scene, I don't know if you know this, shot for shot, it is a copy of Lenny Reifenstahl's Will to Power with Hitler doing the exact same thing and entering onto the White House uh, balcony. And if you think about that, that is Stephen Miller's handiwork all over it. You know it was not a mistake. Literal shot for shot remake. And according to Anderson Cooper, they reshot him coming in. They went to the White House to do the balcony thing, and then they, they did take two on him entering. Yeah. It's like a yeah. shot. It's like it's it's uh it's booked out of sequence like a movie shoot. So what an awful man, what a horrible moment as he was sitting there gasping. You know, we all don't know what's true and what's not true anymore. We're all victims of his gaslighting. And I I will leave with this horrible thought, which someone put into my mind, which is you know, we're supposed to be very kind and would not wish ill on anyone, but I ask you this that you don't have to answer. But when would you have wished Hitler? a speedy recovery in 1945. Yeah. Yeah. How about about in 1939 when he was invading Poland? How about in 19 or 41 when he was starting World War II? How about baby Hitler getting chicken pox? What would you have thought? Yes. And, and, and that's a horrible thing. And I'm I'm not God. I'm not going to play God, but you know, it's more, you know, a lot of people are hiding behind their self-righteousness of like, don't be mean. Not now, not now. 
this is a bad time. And it's like, come on, this guy is, uh, he's, you know, there's also somebody wrote that the, um, what's the Edgar Allan Poe thing about the, the, the red mask ball? Mask of the red death. Mask, yes, mask, mask of the red death. Which takes place during a, a, a play yeah. where all the, the people come together, the rich people, and they laugh and then they die one by one. It is exactly the plot of what we're doing at the White House right now. So God bless America and uh, may God bless and keep the president far away from us. Well, and there is a little bit of good news because Stephen Miller was just diagnosed with uh, the COVID too, right? As the outbreak continues. Yeah, inevitable, inevitable. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that, that that little clip from that footage was when he was literally gasping for breath. It's like, I mean... But how much of this is true? And is Stephen Miller really sick? And is Kellyanne Conway really sick? Or are they all just gaslighting us so that they can come out and say it's absolutely nothing? COVID is don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we don't know. We're living in North Korea. We are in a gaslight situation, so I understand the confusion. But it sounds to me like it's less about lying now. And that would have to be a very carefully orchestrated conspiracy. And they're not that smart. But I could be wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's so incapable. I mean... They can't even stage a photo op with him in a hospital with him actually signing real documents, just signing blank pieces of paper. I know. I think James A. couldn't fake it with that many people. We'll see. We'll see. All right. All right. People are like, now I believe in God or now it's God's punishment. It's like, no, no, no. It's inevitable when you do not take precautions during a pandemic that you will be. Limbaugh saying, I think there's a conspiracy because the Democrats aren't getting it. Well, the Democrats aren't getting it because they're wearing damn masks. <laughs> All right, let's go on to number three, James. Number three. Uh, this weekend was the premiere of Saturday Night Live's new season. Um, it, uh, Chris Rock was the host and Megan the Stallion was the, the guest performer. Um, in the first episode, it was the debut of Jim Carrey doing Joe Biden. And um, the cold open... I'm sorry to say it, it, it just sucked. It was no, it wasn't any good. Um, I think at this point that Alec Baldwin has Trump fatigue. I, I, you know, he started doing it five years ago in 2015. And I think he signed on never thinking that Trump would actually win. And we are five years into it. And I think he's just exhausted. He, he's, he's not happy doing it. Jim Carrey doing Joe Biden was Jim Carrey doing Jim Carrey. He did that thing where he makes his lips go away and then he looks up at the ceiling like like Fire Marshal Bill or Mask. And I think it's it's not funny. It didn't work. It was boring. It was annoying. Um, the writers, I think, are out of steam. Uh, the only Megan the Stallion was really funny. They did a, they did do a, a rap song called Bottom of Your Face in which, because uh, nobody knows what anybody's bottom of their face looks like anymore. It was like, girl, what's the bottom of your face look like? And that was really funny. But then the high point of the show, Tom, I think you'll agree with me. I don't know if you saw it, but it was Chloe Fineman doing Drew Barrymore, the Drew Barrymore show, and she nailed it. She yeah. was so funny. Her, her um, impersonation of Drew was spot on. She got the lisp and the weird little head yeah. tilt and the mannerisms. It was. I hope she does it more and more because it was the it was the best part of the show. What did you? Think it's the it? kind of impersonation that's so good you can't even be angry at it if you're Drew no, Barrymore. In fact, Drew Barrymore, um, the Drew Barrymore show said we see no difference. They tweeted <laughs> that, and then Drew herself said that she was honored to be that, that Chloe did such a fantastic job. So, so yeah, I think, I, that was I think my point. Hard, 
there was a lot of speculation because the news kept changing right before Saturday Night oh, yeah. Live. But I have to say, um, it would be fun. You know when they had um, Melissa McCarthy be what's-his-face? Oh, Spicer, yeah. have all women playing them. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Something radically different. Um, and I also think it's really hard because if you're like me, you're, you're scrolling through your social media all week long. Doom and scrolling is what they call it. And you're either you're either reading funny jokes or in my case, I'm trying to come up with them, not always successfully. But so it almost feels like when Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update comes along, you're, it, it's very rare that they have thought of something that somebody in it, the- It's a hard job. They have a hard job. job. Yeah. But, you know, it's, they're also, it's the first time back. They're working. At, who knows how they're working? I'm glad they're back. I hope it gets better. Well, unfortunately, I mean, this is right now is when we need them more than ever. And we need them to be spot on and on their game. And I just hope that they manage to 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 be cutting and, and, and dangerous in a way that we, we need right now. I do feel for them also, though, because I do think real life has really overleaped satire, you know. And I think it must be quite hard to... Yeah. To think of, of what possible take can you have on it that isn't already grotesquely hilarious, you know? Yeah, true, it's true. I maybe, mean, maybe they use puppets. Uh, there you go, using the puppets. All right, number two. Number two. Dick Johnson is dead. Now, Kirsten Johnson. Should I take that personally? Should I take that personally? Or? Kirsten Johnson is a documentary filmmaker. She is a camera person. In fact, she made a well-known documentary called Camera Person. And she shot Citizen Four, The Invisible War. This film is not yet rated. Dorita, Darfur. Now she's a, she's a big deal. In, she is the tippy-top camera person of the director of photography of documentaries. And she's made this film about her dad, Dick Johnson. And Dick Johnson, spoiler alert, is dead. But... He was a psychiatrist, and when he was diagnosed with sort of, I, I'm not sure if it was Alzheimer's or just dementia, basically, she knew there was a narrow amount of time left that she had with him, and she was devastated by this news. Her mother was already dead. She's been very close to her father, who's a, who was a psychiatrist. And she says to him, let's make a film about you dying. And he said, Yes. And she then proceeds to put him through all sorts of death scenarios. She drops an air conditioner on him as he's walking down the street. She has a construction worker whack him on the head with a plank. She has him have a heart attack. And Wait, in real life she did these things? <laughs> Not in real life. So she's a, it's, it's, The film is a documentary, but these are reenactments, if you will. These are fantasies okay. in which she's imagining... And making her father play someone who dies in a documentary that is exploring the ever moving closer of the inevitable moment when they will be permanently separated. And because her dad, Dick, was a, a shrink, he is such a wonderful character. He's up for anything. He's, you know, he gets tired, but she has him on set. She builds a set that's like heaven. And he has his favorite chair that he sits in and she feeds him chocolate cake. And it's, it is a really touching, interesting, just bold and innovative documentary. It sounds twisted and beautiful. It is twisted and it is beautiful. And I love the fact that it's um, about death because I think death is one of the things 
well, I suppose you have misery porn in documentaries a lot, but I still think even in misery porn documentaries, they're normally looking at other people's suffering. They're not actually like saying, we're all going to die. Let's look about death. Let's think yeah. about death. And and this this is what does it. And there's, there's a great moment where you learn that, that often quite stunt people often are, are susceptible to suicide, for example. They have a predisposition, not a predisposition, but an inordinately high number of stunt people commit suicide. And the um, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, it's just... It's just really great. I mean, I, 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 I was going to say, I don't want to give away the ending, but Dick Johnson is yeah. dead in the title. And, yeah. but I will just say there is a, there is a funeral at the end and you're sort of crying because he's lying there in a coffin, but there's a twist. And it's one I of their really, movements. <laughs> right. I, love I, the idea. I think it's like, What a great guy to be willing to like, let your daughter put you in a coffin and lie there, you know, with all your friends around thinking that they're at your funeral. I mean, it's, it's really quite, it's James. I think you'd love it. I think it's provocative and moving and. But is he friends with an octopus? What? But is he friends with an octopus? Well, maybe, maybe it could be a sequel. Dick Johnson is dead and in love with an octopus or something. Uh, that's streaming on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, all right, can we take a break? When we come back, we will reveal the number one thing this week that made us go, wow. wow. You listen to Wow Report on Radio Andy. You're listening to World of Wonders Wow Report. Things that make us go wow. And welcome back to the moment we've all been waiting for. We reveal the number one thing this week that made us go, wow, I'm here with James and James and Tom Campbell and Blake. And, um, well, what is it? Number one. Sunday, October 11th, is National Coming Out Day. So just taking a moment to recognize that, to remind people that there's no shame in coming out. For us old codgers, it might feel like an issue that's very much in our rearview mirror, but we still live in a world where coming out is something. And uh, it, depending on where you live or where your home group is or what your situation is, it can be very uh, um, uh, it can be very dangerous. It can be very exciting, uh, but it is the direction to go in. I'm curious what everyone's coming out stories is. Who's the first like straight person you came out to? I, I do remember. It was a very spontaneous thing. And it was so funny because I'd been gay, living a gay life for years, but I still hadn't really, I was having sex, but I wasn't really thinking that I was gay for some reason. Yep. It was very strange. And I was in area with Lisa Edelstein, with Lisa E. And I turned to her out of the blue and just said, Lisa, I think I might be gay. <laughs> and I was in a dress. I was carrying a lunchbox. I had been making out with some guy earlier, but somehow it just hit me like a bag of bricks. I might be gay. It was, it was very well, weird. And very strange that it took me like five years to get to there. But that's very straight. I actually came out in a bar too. My mom actually called me and asked, "Are you gay?" And I said, "Yes." I was at the Eagle in Did Los Angeles. Here? Yeah. Wow. So Blake was, in, Blake was in a sling, getting fisted, <laughs> and his right. was like holding his drink. <laughs> Pinky up. 
<laughs> and then what was your what's the first straight person you came up to? Do you remember? I, um, I you know, I don't think I ever really this is awful. I never really came out. Uh except I was 35 at 35 and uh living with Randy of course and have been with Randy for about 15 years and my parents were coming to visit and they were going to stay with us and we talked about well are we going to sleep in separate rooms? What are we going to do? <laughs> so I was like enough time to like face facts i got on a plane to europe to go and tell them that i was gay before they came to visit you yes because i was gonna say just in case you don't want to come (laughs) (laughs) but it was a long way to have to go and i I made the 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 first person in that context i told was my father who picked me up from the airport i couldn't even wait to get home because i was just so antsy and annoyed and just sort of so i told him as he was driving the car and I think that was deliberate because I wanted to make sure he had both hands on the wheel. <laughs> he couldn't hit me or he couldn't like crash the car. <laughs> and it was just rigid, you know, um, and didn't quite understand it. And it was all. But at 35, he had to have sort of suspected. I've been in a band called the Pop Tots. I was wearing gold lame togas. <laughs> and making out with boys in a dress. He still didn't know. I, I think, I, I think. A lot of my coming out because you come out several times sure. is without a sheer like, ugh, I can't play this du- this this double life thing anymore. But the, I think the first straight person I told, I had met a man in college who was older than me. He became my lover, so I had this sort of secret West Coast life, but I was still going to school. And I was listening to Pat Benatar's "We Belong" with my friend Elena, who I went to college with, and it was just so meaningful. That song is so meaningful. Listen to it tonight. And I was just like, you know how sometimes you love people, but you can't express it. And there's so much pain and love, but we still belong. She goes, knowing that I was like this, like dated no one guy. She's like, who are you talking about? And I said, sing open. I'm like, I'm going to tell you, but you're going to be shocked. <laughs> she said, go ahead, tell me. And I said, I'm in love with Tom. And she goes, yeah, I kind of figured, you know, I'm gay. I'm in love with Tom. And But she did say, she goes, listen, and she's the most loyal person, but this is a kind of a funny thing. She goes, listen, we're, we're best friends. And even if you killed someone, you'd still be my best friend. So uh, equating being gay with murder, I think was a lovely gift from my friend Elena. But she had- <laughs> You just reminded me that my father, the first thing he said after like, he said, well, just don't tell your mother. <laughs> I was like, I gave a fucking France to tell you. Like, <laughs> and I had to wait like several days because my mother had her best friend staying and he was like, wait till she's left. And all <laughs> Tom, that's a beautiful story. And uh, I guess, you know, I guess ultimately coming out in a way to other people is ultimately an act of coming out to yourself, really. Yeah. And, you know, it, they say, not to get, but the Trevor Project has a statistic that if a young person who's in the closet, if there's one person they can talk to about being gay, just one person, that the statistics of them doing harm to themselves or committing suicide goes way down. So come out when you're ready. If you know somebody, you know, it, again, it's very delicate, but just, you know, love people for who they are. It's such a small part of who we are, but it's, uh, it's just important to be who you are, huh? Beautifully said. Tom, thank you. James and James, thank you. Blake, thank you. Um, same time, same place next week. Until then, go out and do something that makes the world go. Wow. Wow, 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 wow.